we're going to do Genesis 19. Uh, in, interesting here. Um, uh, I want you to hold on with me to the end uh, because uh, I see Christmas, what we think of as Christmas, or what the Bible says is Christmas is a better way of saying it, the incarnation. I see it right there in the strange, terrible, awful, wicked chapter of Genesis 19. And I want to remind you something. Christmas is a serious business. What we call Christmas as Christians, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the baby in the manger. It's really serious business. Let me read you something. Maybe you've forgotten this. Maybe you haven't. But after we see in Matthew chapter 2, the wise men from the east, there's this person, this kingly big shot named Herod. And he actually had a secret meeting with the wise men to determine what time the star would appear. And he sent those wise men into Bethlehem unknowingly to go and search carefully for the young child to report back to him. What did he want? Well, he was after murder. Murder, the Christmas story. Remember that the family, Christ's family, were told to go to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word, Matthew chapter 2 Verse 13 says, For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. This is serious business. Matthew chapter 2. And when verse 14, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Who would have ever thought that the Messiah would come out of Egypt? And God orchestrated those events. But it then says in verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived, or deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, not just angry, exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death, put to death, folks, blood, death, murder, torture, all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts. Can you imagine two-year-old babies and everybody under baby boys slaughtered? The Bible's real, man. They were slaughtered according to the time which he had determined from the wise men and then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. That's Jeremiah 31, 15. I brought you here as we're going to go back to the first book of the Bible to show you that there's an enemy of our souls that wants to kill, destroy, lie to you. And wants to keep us at all costs from Jesus Christ and knowing who he is. So much so that this deranged king would order a hit on all the babies in the region. That's part of the Christmas story as told in the Bible. The enemy wants to keep Jesus out of everything. Of course, here he wanted to keep him from living his life and going to the cross. What we celebrated today in communion and all of that. Because he knows that the grace of God, listen to me now, is scandalous to the human mind. Many preachers teach this. 
and say this when you're talking about the book of Romans. I think it's true. Hopefully, they say, and I'm paraphrasing, you'll understand grace and preach it in such a way so that the ultra-conservative, by-the-book people in your fellowship will feel uncomfortable when you teach the book of Romans. Hold on now. They also say, all the people in your congregation who you teach to, when you understand and think about grace and teach it, the book of Romans, you know, or God's grace, it's found a, a lot in the book of Romans. They say the, 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 the liberal, you know, uh, sort of let it go, uh, you know, more carefree, they're going to feel uncomfortable. You get it? Grace makes both sides of the aisle really uncomfortable. And I think you're going to see that today. And I think when you examine, when we examine together Lot chapter nine, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 19 and the story of Lot, there's going to be people on this side of the aisle who are really, really uncomfortable with it. And there's going to be people on this side of the aisle going to be really, really uncomfortable. And all of us in between. Why? Because we think we need to measure up. Period. God can't love us if we don't measure up. God can't use us if we don't measure up. And Bo, by the way, we like to measure up, and here's why. I really think so because the scriptures refer to it. Because if we have a standard where we measure up, guess what I get to do? I get to compare myself against all of you, and you get to compare yourself against all of me. The Bible says, uh, you know, it's all because of grace, lest anyone should boast. And man, does that resonate with me. Because I would boast, trust me, if it wasn't for grace. Because I know it's not me. So now when we go back to Genesis chapter 19, I want you to remember we're in a Christmas season, what we call Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the, uh, Jesus coming from heaven as a baby. The wonder of that. And we do a lot of other different things around it, and I'm not here to comment on that, but I'm saying, what, what I'm saying is this story that really happened is serious business. It's a cosmic struggle between God who's good and an enemy who hates your guts and hates God. And so when you get to Genesis 19, you know, I even have to admit, just like Xander said, I got to it this week and I'm really busy and I, you know, sit down last weekend and I go, oh, hmm. Genesis 19, eh? What in the world? But the Lord showed me something this week I've never seen in this story. And I want you to see it too. It says this, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Two angels, what are we talking about? Well, remember in Genesis chapter 18, three angels, quote-unquote, came to speak to Abraham and Sarah. Do you remember this? And they came and they gave great hospitality to these three angels, 
Two of them obviously were angels. We learn it right here. One of them, I believe, and most commentators believe, was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. And at this time, two angels then come down to Sodom in the evening. Remember, Abraham had interceded for Sodom because his nephew and his nephew's family, Lot, had chosen the amazing, wonderful, plush areas of the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is at the southern tip of the Dead Sea. And you remember this interplay between Abraham and God. He said, you know, God, for 50 righteous people, would you spare Sodom and Gomorrah? And you know it. They went to 45, and then they start going into tens. But I want to remind you something of uh, what God was doing with the mighty man of faith, Abram. Oh, by the way, just a little rabbit trail. Abraham wasn't this unbelievable, saintly dude who was totally pious. I mean, he went off the rails some here, folks. Famine? There's a famine? I know that I'm supposed to be in the promised land, but I'm going to take matters into my own hand, Abraham said. And he took his whole family to Egypt. He took them out of the promises of God, the promised place of God, the place that God told him to go. I mean, come on. He was being disobedient or wishy-washy or something. How about this? He comes into enemy territory with his beautiful wife, and he says, oh, well, you know, she's just my sister. He's lying. And on and on. Noah wasn't always such a great saint either, folks. Noah wasn't either. You know some of the things he did with alcohol and led to some pretty sordid stuff. And yet, God puts... A, uh, Noah in the uh, hall of faith in the New Testament in Hebrews 11. And also we learn in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham believed and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, right? Amazing. God, and when he had these men by the Holy Spirit write down his Bible, his love letter to us, his books of the Bible, It is raw and real. Who lives out in the world where it's raw and real? I do. The Bible's for us. But here's what he wanted his father of faith, Abraham, to learn. He wanted him to learn in verse 19 of chapter 18, for I've known him in order what? That he may command his children. Now, some of you in here may not have biological children, but all of us are to have children of the faith. Disciple people and be discipled. You're discipling somebody. And one of the things that God wants to teach to the people of faith, that's you, is that you're to be teaching others, growing others as you're being grown. He says it to Abraham. And he says, I want you to command your children, your household after him, that you keep the way of the Lord to do righteous. I got news for you. You can't do righteous until you are righteous. And the way in which you're righteous has nothing to do with you. It has to do with everything about what Christ did at the cross. When we say we're righteous, it's over. 
It's done. To telestai, it's finished. And when we place our trust in him, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that you receive the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. See, right there it starts to get scandalous. Because some of you orthodoxers over here, and some of you people over here who, you know, sort of pick the spiritual daisies of life, But you people over here are like, wait a minute, they're getting in? And the people over here are like, that attitude, he's getting in? Really? Lord, I know you're kinder than this, gentler than this. Amen? But we recognize that the Bible says we receive his righteousness because of his life he lived, the death he died, and rising again. And now he can impute that to us What must we do? Listen, what must we do to do the works of God? They asked Jesus, and he said, believe. Believe. So this becomes scandalous. Because when you, in order to do righteousness, you must be righteous. How are you righteous? You're righteous by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ, surrendering your life to all that he is and has done and completed and all that he's going to do, everything, your whole life is given back to him, Romans 12, 1 through 2, in devotion. That's what you do. You just give your life, and now he comes into your life and gives you his righteousness. It's the greatest of all time. It's why we come here during Christmas. And also, I celebrate, and I think you do too, I celebrate Christmas in January, in February, in March, in April, da-da-da-da-da. All the months we celebrate Christmas. You get it? He said here to Abraham, I want you to do righteousness and justice, and then look up uh, in verse 25. We learned that You know, as Abraham's talking to God, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked. We learn that the righteous people of the world aren't judged with the wicked. And we talked about some separate judgments last week. The great great white throne judgment, which I want none of you to be at. You'll be judged according to your righteousness. And if you failed that much... You failed. But if you're at the Bema seat judgment, you've come into eternal life by the righteousness of God, and God evaluates you based on what he gave you for eternal crowns in heaven. Praise the Lord. And you say, we were talking about this yesterday. Well, you know, somebody like me is apt to compete. Well, you know, you got six crowns and I've got 6.3, so... But you won't do that, and here's why. Because you're going to lay them back down at the feet of Jesus in worship. They're to worship the Lord. That's it. It's not to compare yourself. Well, so righteousness, justice. Look, slay the righteous with the wicked. We are not going to be judged with them. So that the righteous should be as the wicked, far be it from you. Why? Shall not the judge of all the earth, listen, do right. This is what... God was getting at with Abraham. He was eliciting from Abraham this confidence in the Lord. You get it? In how he is a judge. 
I think if you study the attribute of God, of his justice and judgeship, you'll be totally blessed because I believe life makes sense when you recognize Jesus, or excuse me, God as judge. You get this? In other words, life matters now. The things we do count. The idle things we say burn away. (laughs) All that talk about sports. Oh, my, my. Well, anyway, that's what he was after. And you know the story. And uh, when we get to the end of chapter 18, here's, this is an amazing picture. I want you to picture it in your mind because it's going to be my punchline at the end. If I get off track and I don't give you my punchline, you raise your hand and say you need the punchline. Here it is, though. Look, here's God and Abraham looking down over the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah from a, from a place up towards Hebron, close up there. Listen, and they're just looking out over the plains. God and Abraham talking this over. And it says, well, okay, I won't destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way. And I don't want you to think that God changed his mind. God was doing something. I just took you through it. God was eliciting from Abraham what God wanted to teach Abraham through this volley back and forth. And he said, I won't destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And Abraham went back home. What a beautiful picture up on the plains of, or up over the plains, looking down. God says his goodbyes. Abraham says his goodbyes. And they part. And then it says something important that I never caught before. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. I never caught that it was in the evening. I want you to mark that, and we'll come back to it. And Lot was sitting sitting at the gate of Sodom. So you know, now, as you've studied the Life of Lot. Earlier in 13, chapter 13, Lot looked down over Sodom. He looked and he said, wow, that was, that looks great down there when David, or excuse me, Abraham gave him a choice. Remember? That looks great. I'm going to take it down there. He simply looked. By the way, folks, when God called Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, he said, don't take your family. Leave your family. Well, Abraham didn't do that because Lot's still around. But, okay, God's going to work in and through the choices that he's made. And so two angels come to Sodom. We know that it was a slow burn here for Lot. He first looked at Sodom. Second, he Genesis 13, later in the chapter, he pitched his tent at Sodom. Then in chapter 14, it says he moved into Sodom. And here now, we see that he's sitting in the gate. And when you sit in the gate, the uh, uh, according to the biblical language, the, the implication here is that he's uh, ingrained himself into the community. Because in the gate was where all the business decisions were made, where philosophy was discussed, where all the court cases were adjudged. It was at the gate. So now the implication is he's somehow involved in civic duties. Get it? And when you read the New Testament, there's something that the New Testament says in 1 John 
chapter 2. This is one of the first lessons we learn as we want to follow Jesus because all that he's accomplished as he came as a baby. By the way, isn't that yonder southern song from down in south amazing? It's not a southern song, but when I hear it, yonder, I mean, isn't that an amazing hymn? I hadn't heard it till last year. But when you read First uh, John chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 15, John writes this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, we remember that. We always remember that. We get to that and we go, yeah, okay, great, no problem. No problem. Except for I think we forget to read the rest of it or remember the rest of it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. Uh-oh. Now this is getting serious. For all that is in the world, look at it, the lust of the flesh, the carnality, remember that word, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I deserve this or that. Is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, just think about Take what we know just a little bit about grace, whether you're at this camp or this camp or somewhere in between. And you read that, and you go, whoa, wait a minute. I'll bet you there's not a person in here, let me see if there is, who's never given in to that. Come on, man. Pride of life? Pride of life? Lust of the flesh? I'm not even talking about another human being, lust of the flesh, but that's pretty big one. What about lusting after a pair of Nikes or a, come on, basketball players out here, or whatever you lust after, or a new house or that car or whatever it is? Not that those things are bad in and of themselves, but we can lust after it, can't we? And so you put that against there and you go back and you go, wait a minute, Lot had a problem. Lot had a problem from the family of God. Lot's problem was that he loved the world. He really liked being in the world. He looked down over the plains, lust. Whew, man, do you see that neighborhood down there? Lot, you said I could have my choice. I'm taking that. Lust of the eyes. You see it? And so he does and he moves there and, uh, He's down there. He's sitting in the the gate. And when Lot saw them, these two angels, he rose to meet them. He's sort of like Abram. You catch it? Abraham got up and extravagantly blessed the three visitors in chapter 18. Uh, Lot gets up and he bows down with his face, and that's pretty good. And he says, here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house. He's exercising uh, uh, Middle Eastern ancient hospitality, right? It's your duty now that he, they've come to you as a Middle Eastern person. This is ingrained in them. That you're to bless them, honor them, be generous to them, and protect them. Right? And so he says, wow, you're going to come and uh, you're going to turn into uh, my house and spend the night. And hey, I'll even wash your feet and then you can get up early and you can go on your way. And they said, nah, we're going to spend the night in the open square. And that's sort of like, you know, a slap across Lot's face. What do you mean you're not going to stay with me? 
I'm extending to you hospitality. You don't do this in this sort of neighborhood and culture. And they say, no, we're going to go out. And he insisted strongly, no, 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 no. No, you're not. I'll be the laughing stock of the city. I sit in the city gate. You're going to come and you're going to live with me for the night or stay with me for the night. So they turned into him and entered his house. And then he made them a feast. See, sort of like chapter 18. And uh, baked unleavened bread. They ate. Well, that's very, very interesting. Unleavened bread, you know this. Leaven versus unleavened. Xander referred to it today. What's leaven? Leaven is the yeast that rises in the dough. And we know that it's a picture always of sin in the Bible. Watch. Because you're going to read about Lot, and I don't know about you, when I read this chapter, I get mad. You wait. I get mad. But somehow, some way, he knew about unleavened and leavened. You see it? He had some spiritual training. Something was going on. And I thought Xander was fooling me this morning when he said, First Peter, I'm going to take you to Second Peter. And I want you to go to chapter two. Second Peter chapter two. Because I don't know if you know this. Do you know this? Maybe. There's commentary on the life of Lot. And Peter was told this and knew about it, and he writes about it in Second Peter <coughs> chapter 2. Uh, let me get there. When you get to... Let, let's start in verse 4. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment... And didn't spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> I mean, read about Noah's life, folks. You go, really? Righteous? The people over here are like, really? People over here are like, yeah, <laughs> praise the Lord. <laughs> because listen. The Bible allows me, a flawed human being who needs Jesus big time, or somebody else, you go to a different church, he lets your pastor, he gives them an opportunity to preach his word under a higher standard, the Bible says. Listen, because I am righteous like you're righteous if you're in Christ, but I still have sinned and sinned. So I can preach about righteousness because I am positionally righteous, but practically sometimes it doesn't come out so well. Don't ask Jan about that. You can be a preacher of righteousness, you see. And that's the point. Bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. That's who God is. He didn't spare the ancient world. That's what it says. I'm bringing you back to what he said before. Bringing in the flood 
and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making, listen, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And then this one almost knocks you off your seat. Come on. And delivered Lot, who, or delivered, excuse me, righteous Lot. Because here in a minute, folks, you and I are not going to be happy with old Lot. But we can be righteous because he accomplished what he accomplished. What must I do to do the works of God? Jesus answered, believe. So delivered righteous Lot. Listen, listen to what was happening in Lot in the cities, in the plains. He was oppressed. He was, listen, he was worn down. You getting this? He was worn down. He was oppressed, pushed down by the filthy conduct of the wicked. The environment started to just wear him out. He thought, oh, the prosperity and the good looking and the, wow, it looks beautiful. The the gated community. It's going to be amazing, honey, when we move here. The kids are going to thrive. It's going to be a great school system. Whoa. And he got there, and the wickedness was so bad, it wore him down. For that righteous man dwelling among them, listen, tormented his righteous soul. He was tormented because of the wickedness there. From day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. You know, the problem here in America a lot of times is we're desensitized to the wickedness. So we cave into it. We're so desensitized... We watch the same things. We read the same things. We look at the same things. We say the same things. And the Bible says, don't love the world and the things of it. You can be in the world, but not of the world. Are you in the world as a person who's changing the environment of the world you're in? Or is the environment changing you? And it changed Lot, who is a righteous dude. We didn't say dude, but you get it. He's righteous. It's almost, you're, you're reading this, I gotta tell you. I get angry. What this guy does. Well, they're, asking if they can stay, the angels, and he makes them a feast, and uh, they before they lay down, it's evening time, did I tell you that? <laughs> the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, all the people from every quarter, both old and young, surround the house. Whew, this is bad. The sin the perversity, the darkness, the evil. You can just feel it strangling this story and these people. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Where are those angels? Those people outside are asking. Bring them out to us that we may know them. Here it comes again, carnally. Carnally. Flesh, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. 
I mean, make no mistake, these people, these men, wanted to commit homosexual perverse acts with the guests in Lot's house. And you know that the Bible says in Romans, you want to go there? Uh, verse 26. Romans 1, verse 26, sorry. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. This is Paul speaking, New Testament, folks. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Now listen, that's the New Testament scriptures. I got to tell you, I don't have to be a Greek, Hebrew scholar to understand that. In fact, you say, well, that's the New Testament. Well, you could go into Leviticus 18, chapter 20, or verse 22, or Leviticus 20, verse 13, you're going to see virtually the same thing. So both the Old Testament and the New Testament say that homosexuality is a sin. Now listen, if somebody comes to my office and they say, you know, Pastor, I'm uh, thinking about leaving my wife and I've been having an affair with this person. You all would say to me, well, I know what you're going to tell her. Tell him, right? You're going to tell him that's precluded from the Bible and that you're praying and hoping and asking and helping to guide that person to remain true and faithful to his wife. Would you raise your hand if you would want me to say that? Why would you want... Oh, only a few. That's weird, but... <laughs> Little joke. But why would you want me to say that? Here's why. Because God said so in His Scriptures. Hmm. Well, then why doesn't it apply when God says so in His Scriptures in a relationship between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Why doesn't the same thing apply? It's really strange, isn't it? In fact, if someone came and said that, I think what you would say is, well, you can counsel them through the Scriptures. Amen? It's not that we don't have something against that person or this person. No way. You know what? Christians should be the most... Tolerant, I said the word, there you go, I said the word. Christians should be the most tolerant, loving, understanding, truthful people in the entire world because of the Holy Spirit. Here's the deal, though. We just can't endorse everything. People say you're intolerant. I'm like, what? I tolerate everybody. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking out here right now. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's a joke, too. No, we tolerate everybody. Amen? We tolerate everybody. We love everybody. Everybody deserves dignity and respect and kindness and love and truth. 
because they're made in the image of God. Amen? Right, but we can't endorse everything. Just like we can't endorse affairs or looking at pornography or gossiping. We can't endorse it because the Lord says don't. It's in his word. It says don't do it. Well, here you see it, but I want to remind you too, this wasn't the only reason God was upset with Sodom and Gomorrah. This is one of the reasons, and I know it because I read it in either Jude verse 6 or 7. It's one of the two where their perversity was so wicked and dark. But listen, he also said, I told you this last week in Ezekiel sixteen forty-nine, that God was upset with them because of their pride, fullness of, of food. They were, forgive the, well, I won't say it, but they were comfortable. They were comfortable. And they had too much in materialism and abundance of idleness. They had too much leisure. It's good to have leisure, but they were idle people. That's what it says in Ezekiel 16. And neither did they strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. That's what God had against Sodom and Gomorrah in addition to what we read here. Boy, that's convicting. Because you sort of do what I did last week. Go, can you believe those people doing that over there? And then you go, oh, wait a minute. Pride, idleness, comfortability. So they surround the house and they call to Lot and say to him, where are the men who came to you? Bring them out. We want to know them carnally. Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, hey, guys, 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 brothers. Did you notice that? Brothers. I know you people. I sit in the city gate. You're my brothers. Woe. Please, my brothers, don't do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters. You see why I'd get mad? This is horrid. I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they've come under the shadow of my roof. Come on. If you don't think grace is scandalous, you never read Genesis 19. And we have a lot of things that we've done that we're not proud of, even after we've surrendered our life to Christ. But here you go, whoa, wait a second, Lord. We need thee every hour. For the life of me, and I've read a lot of books about this, (laughs) I can't figure out why he would do this. This is awful. And they say, stand back. Then they say, this one came in to stay here. Talking about Lot. And they say, stand back. And then they said, this one came in to stay here. He's talking about Lot coming to move into the city. And he keeps acting as a judge. Listen, (laughs) this is where grace, somehow, some way, I can't explain it, guys, gals. Lot's life and his 
relationship with the Lord somehow transferred and the men of the city who he called brothers knew about it. Get it? Anywhere that we go where there's evil things going and we have the presence of Christ in our lives, we're going to make people feel judged. Are you catching this? Even if we don't do anything. (laughs) And that's what's happening here. So how more it is than to live in response to the love of Christ and to be a light in a world, how effective would that be? I mean, and also how, excuse the way I'm going to say it, I don't even know if it's theologically correct, but how irritating you're going to be to non-believers because you are, your presence, which is the Holy Spirit, is convicting them. When you pray over your meal at lunch, when you say, bless you, when you keep a joyful attitude because the Lord lives in your life, they're going to be convicted because they want to complain and moan and cry and say it's Monday and they hate their job and they don't want to be there and blah, blah, blah. What else? Everything, other things they're going to say. You understand this? And this is, when I read this, I go, whoa, wait a second. Because sometimes when I have that impact at my workers, wherever, I kind of, I'm just, I'm the pastor. I'm not supposed to say it, but I sort of go, wow, I'm doing pretty good. And then I read about Lot. And I'm reminded, it's not me. It's not me. So, Lot. And they said, stand back. He keeps acting as a judge. Now we're going to deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man lot and they came near to break down the door, but the men reached out their hands. Look, and they pulled lot into the house. The angels do with them and they shut the door and they struck the men who were at the doorway of our house with blindness, both small and great so that they become weary trying to find the door. And that word is only used one other time in the old Testament. It's in second Kings six with Elijah. And it can mean blindness like you can't see, but really what it's probably talking about is confusion because that's what happened with the Syrian army back there. So, so they confused them. The Lord confused these people and they're walking about and listen, I'm, I'm sort of playing and being funny, but not really. It was like they were like zombies of evil. And it was dark and it was awful. They're still clutching after him, trying to get into the house. But as you see, don't you? The Lord protected him. And if anybody ever got in, not on his own merits. Man, was it lot. I mean, two paragraphs ago, you just want to knock him out. Doing that? Well, then the med, look at this in verse 12, said to lot, have you anybody else here? (laughs) And... Son-in-law, your sons, do you notice that the angels have a care for all to be saved? Who else is here? Your son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, 
take them out of this place, for we're going to destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord. Lord pays attention to what's happening in the cities, to the people and the things that they partake in. The Lord knows and understands, and he watches and he knows, and there's coming a point in time where the Lord is going to protect us, in my opinion, I think the scriptures say it, he's going to protect us and bring us up in the rapture of the church, and then he's going to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world and deal with the nation of Israel. For seven years, seven whole years, at the end of that time, he's going to come back to the earth in the second coming with his saints. That's you folks, me, us who've given our lives to Christ, and he's going to rule and reign here for a thousand years. Is that amazing? And you see it right here. You also see it, I think, in the story of Noah, but you see it right here. And you go, wait a minute, Lot's in there? So he says... uh, He's concerned about all these people. We're going to destroy this place. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy this city. Do you know this in second Peter three, three, it says in the last days, there's going to be amazing amounts of scoffers who walk after their own. Listen to what the word is lusts. They love the world more than they love the plan of God. Amen? For the Lord's going to destroy this city, and here has to be one of the saddest verses in the history of the Bible, in all of the Bible. It's one of them. It's got to be top ten. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Which tells me that the sons-in-law aren't into spiritual things, but it tells me something else. Lot wasn't either a lot of the time. (laughs) Here's Lot. I'm going to look out and see where the best place is that I can grow my business, that I can be seen as wonderful and rich with the gated community and the plush thing and bring up the livestock. And uh, I like the stuff here. I like the stuff and the power and the prestige. And I, I don't, okay, I don't care about... You kids come second. We're going to move there. And it was too much. It wore him down and strapped him down and overcame him. And he got to the place where he was an ineffective spiritual leader. So ineffective that when he started to speak spiritual things, at the end of time, his family said, nah, You never talked like this before. You're joking around. And you say, well, okay, maybe I haven't been the spiritual leader that I should be. Well, today's the day. Don't wait any longer. You go out of here and get on your knees, me, and say, Lord, I haven't done it. But I want to do it now. I see how important it is. Help me, Lord. Give me the ability and the strength and let me be be sincere in my life and authentic and not worry about these weird, dumb things that mean nothing and are just hurting my family. I'm going to leave that behind and I'm going to lead my family in the spiritual things. 
And if you haven't been the spiritual leader, apologize. Don't start off with, you know, the five points of Calvinism versus Arminianism. How about this? Say, I was wrong all these years. And I didn't do it. But with your help and God's grace, I want to step into the spiritual leadership of my family. It doesn't mean I'm the boss. It means I'm leading. I want to talk about spiritual things. I want to live out spiritual things. I want to love people like you did. And I want my kids and my family to come along and be safe too. I don't want anybody to say, come on, Dad. You're joking. I don't want anybody to say that. Maybe that's you. Well, he was ineffective, and they didn't listen. And the Bible tells us, I think, that it's possible to have a saved soul like Lot and a wasted life. Who, man. Second, or First Corinthians 3.15, you can read about that. That you can have a saved soul and a wasted life, and I don't want that, and I don't want that for us, and I don't want that for my family. And when, listen, circle it. When the morning dawned, I never saw this before. For some reason, the writer of Genesis, Moses here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is concerned about the times of day. We've been operating throughout the evening, and now it's come to the dawning of the morning. You ever been outside right before the morning dawns? It's so black and dark, and then when that thing comes up over the horizon, glory. And the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife, your two daughters are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment. And while he lingered... And here's what you pray for if you're the dad. Don't let me linger in the things of the world. I don't want to look back. I don't want to, I want to give it up all and just be devoted to you and lead my family. It's the most important thing after salvation and being with you, Lord. It's just leading my family. I want us to be protected and healthy and right with you. I'm sorry that I didn't do it now, but praise the Lord for new mercies every morning. And so he lingered like people who love the world linger. And the men took hold of his hand. Isn't this beautiful? As the sun is just about ready to come up over the horizon. It's such a beautiful sight. We used to live in Hawaii. and Oh, man, you got to be kidding me. It's almost too hard to believe. And you've been beautiful places, too. And you've seen it when that is dark and then boom. And you got the image here of these men, these angels. Look, four hands taking his wife's hands and the hands of his two daughters. And then here comes scandal again. And the Lord was merciful to him. Mercy means holding back what you deserve. Grace means getting what you don't deserve. Mercy means not getting what you do deserve. What a beautiful sight of these angels, God's messengers, leading these people out of the city. So it came to pass when they brought them outside, he said, escape for your life. Don't look behind you, nor stare anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Mountains. We don't have time today. But you do a study of what God did on the mountains. 
and you'll be totally blessed. He gave the law on the mountain. He did the transfiguration on the mountain. And he did lots of other things. But anyway, he tells him to go to the safety of the mountains, back up away from uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Lot said to them, please, no, my lords. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight. And if you increased your mercy, would you have shown me by saving my life? Listen to this. This is funny biblical stuff. But I bet you say it and I say it when we're faced with having to unclutch our fingers or our hold on the world. You're like, well, okay, maybe I'll give up that one, but can you give me something a little different? Uh, I don't know about the mountains, Lord. I mean, the mountains, really, the mountains? And uh, he says, see now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? It's funny. The Bible's funny. It's like, Lord, it's just a little city. It's down in the plain, I know, but it's little. It's no big deal. I won't. You know, be a big deal down there. Just let me hang out there. God says, go to the mountains. He says, no, I want to go to the little city. And uh, uh, and he said to him, see, I've favored you concerning this thing also, and that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for it can't do anything until you arrive there. Why couldn't God do anything until he arrived there? Well, that's because of chapter 18, verse 25, when it said, far be it from me, Uh, or far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked. The righteous had to get out. The wicked had to be left behind and left behind. And then here uh, you see that the Lord in his mercy allowed him to go to this little city called Zoar, which is just a little one. It's nothing, which reminds me in Ephesians chapter three, you go, you go, I, I, you're going to get mad, maybe some of you who are more couth than I am. But what an idiot. I'm going to set you up in the mountains where they can't attack. No hate, no brimstone, no fire. It can't get you up there. You want to stay down here on the plain in some little podunk city? What's wrong with you? Lord didn't say it. I would say it. And then I'm reminded, though of this verse, or these verses. Now to him, verse 20 of Ephesians 30, or Ephesians chapter 3, who is able to do exceedingly abundant above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. And I gotta tell you, I'm no prosperity preacher, but you gotta realize that we Oftentimes, almost most times, because of our attachment to the world, expect less than the best that God wants to give to us. And it's constant. We settle for less. We don't pray big. And I'm not talking about for our own personal benefit, but for God's good and his glory. Yes, we stay humble. But the Lord, he says it in Daniel chapter 11, listen, wants to do great things or great exploits through the people that know him. And that's you and me. That's us. This little fellowship, he wants to do some great things. But we say, ah, set me down in the plane. The Lord says, you really? I got the chalet in the mountain. You want the plane? Okay. I mean, can you believe the kindness 
and patience and generosity and mercy of God? Even when sort of Lot is kind of being spiritual, but kind of not, and has his clutches on the world. It's incredible. So he says that, and he said, verse 23, the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot... Do you get it again? Here it comes again. Here's another place where this writer is concerned about what time of the day this all happened. That's important. Then the Lord raised brimstone, or rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven. And you know all about this. You understand that down in that area there were uh, uh, underground gas deposits. You want to hit the map, and uh, please, and uh, all that sort of thing. And a lot of geologists and those sorts of people will... Uh, talk to you, Sodom and Gomorrah down here at the end of the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. It's down there. You gotta see the men came from Hebron area down to Sodom, the angels and all that sort of thing. Sodom and Gomorrah right at the tip. I want you to see where Zoar is. It's over on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. Uh, that's where the brimstone and fire came. And there is geological factors that make that uh, a place where that could happen, but it doesn't negate the fact that God was the one who was in control of it. Whatever you believe about that. By the way, they've unearthed in their archaeological digs five cities, five cities, and if you read Genesis 14, it says there are five cities in the plain. They've unearthed five cities down there, so they know that there was life down there. What's interesting about this is remember... At the beginning of this story, this area is lush and beautiful because he looks down and he goes, well, I'm for sure going down there. And after this happened, if you go to Israel, it looks like scorched earth. In fact, if you put some of the pictures up, this is a picture up from the hill of Masada when we went and that's actually Jordan on the other side. And there's this Dead Sea. And you can see it's dead. And when you go in there, you understand, right, that the oceans have 6 to 8% salt in it. This has 37% salt in it. So when you swim in it, there's another picture over there. When you swim in the salt sea or the Dead Sea, it's like you're the, um, the Michelin tire man. You're on your back and you're just like, uh, or, you know, and you're floating and you can't sink. Uh, Xander's dad tried to dive in face first, the very thing they told him not to do. <laughs> and some people, there's rocks in the bottom on our second trip, fell and tripped because it was weird to stand up in and hurt themselves. Uh, do you have the video or can you not do it? If you can't, that's okay. If you can't, it's really beautiful. Uh, one of our friends took a video, if you could do it. If you can't totally understand. But there's no fish in the Dead Sea. Do you understand that? By the way, time out. Prophecy about the Dead Sea. In Ezekiel 47, read it again, right around verse 8, maybe from verse 8 to verse 10, the Bible tells us in the millennial kingdom, that sea is going to come back to life. And there's going to be fish and it's going to be teeming and it's going to be lush again. Get that? You could look that up after. We laughed and joked, I think. Oh, here we go. There's a picture of the plane down there. Oh, good. All right, good. <laughs> hey, good for you, Autumn, because I sprung that on Autumn about 
1.2 milliseconds before the, before the talk. But, uh, in, in the, uh, in millennial kingdom, that's going to come back to life. We joked and we said, you know what we're going to do is we're going to buy stock in the fishing bait industry at the Dead Sea and everybody's going to go, what? Are you kidding me? You, and then we'll, but anyway, you get it. Uh, so that's the history and you can see it's scorched earth, earth now, but look at this. His wife looked back. Never tells us her name, and she became a pillar of salt. And I want you to turn, turn to Luke 17, verse 32, real quick. Luke 17, verse 32. Is it any coincidence? No, it's not. That this is spoken about in the last days times uh, discourse that Jesus is talking about. Let me find it. You know, in 26, it says, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the son of man, eating, drinking, marrying wives. Uh, until the day that Noah entered the ark, the flood came and destroyed them. Likewise, it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone. This is Jesus talking, by the way, folks. You think Jesus believed in the book of Genesis? And it rained fire from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And that day, he who is on the housetop, his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. And then it says, remembers Lot's wife. In other words, what was Lot's wife doing? She didn't want to give up her stuff. Maybe we don't want to give up our stuff. And Abraham went early in the morning. He's preoccupied with the time of day. To the place where he'd stood before the Lord, then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and he saw, and behold, the smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace. This this is sort of funny. Not That, that part ain't funny. This is so like us right here. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities, that's not funny, of the plain, that God remembered Abraham. Abraham's prayers. God was responding to the prayers of Abraham. Get it? And sent Lot out in the midst of the overthrow. You don't think corporate prayer isn't important? I know some of the people come here, man. These people come every week, okay? There's a core group of people that come here and pray for you. No kidding. They pray for you. And they do it every week. And I got to tell you, I'm the pastor. And some weeks, I don't feel like coming. And they come. And they're faithful. And I believe that the Lord is honoring the prayers of the saints. And you do it at home. I'm not convicting you or making you feel guilty. I'm saying, what a ministry. And Abraham was blessed to do it. And so a lot of people here. And Lot was sent out of the midst of the overthrow. And when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt, then look at this. Then Lot went up out of Zohar and dwelt in the mountains. And his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zohar. Oh, Lord, I guess you were right. You mind if I just come on up here? And then all the fruit of the way in which he compromised comes to fruition here. It shows itself in his life. 
He brought his kids to a place of revelry and drunkenness. And yes, they were virgins and there must have been something that he was teaching them, but he brought them and it wore their family down. And look what happens. He dwells in a cave, the darkest spot you could go to. And it's used, by the way, for his aunt's tomb. She's buried in the cave, different one, but she's buried in a cave. Sometimes this is like death. The darkest place these people could go in a cave. The firstborn says to the younger, our father's old and there's no man on the earth. Here it comes again, just like with Abraham. She and they are taking their, the, the, the things of God into their own hands and saying, we're going to make it happen. And they do. They get their father drunk. Let us make our father uh, drink wine and we'll lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made him drink wine. By the way, I have a whole thing about the dangers of alcohol. Every time I talk about it, somebody gets mad at me and I don't care. Because there's nobody here that's drunk more than I have. <laughs> but I, I get in trouble when I talk about it. And you got to be very careful. You got to be careful. It's... I understand. I know the, I know the arguments, but be very careful. And come, let us make our father drink and we'll lie with him that we may preserve the lineage, compromise and fuel to the fire. And they made their father drink wine and the firstborn went in and lay with her father and didn't know when she lay down or when she arose, they were drunk. And it happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let his, uh, let him uh, drink wine and also go in and lie with him that we may preserve the lineage. They're forcing themselves. They're, they're, they're not trusting the Lord. They're, and then they made their father drink wine and the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And here it comes. Listen, if you know this, you're going to really be a student of the old Testament. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. And the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the people of Ammon to this day. Now listen. If you're in Bible college, don't answer this. What's the capital of Jordan today? Amon. Same thing. The Moabites, the Ammonites, are on the eastern side of the Jordan River down there by that area. Now, I read something today from another commentator. I just want you to know this. This account here doesn't give rise to Israel's conflict with the Moabites and the Ammonites just because they're a different people. You understand what I'm saying? It's not discriminatory. Because they're going to have conflict throughout the Old Testament. I want you to know that. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9 and 19, God regarded these territories as given by him to them and affirmed the right of these people to live peaceably. But they... You can read about it in Deuteronomy 23, treated the Israelites in an evil and unkind and violent way. You can read about it there. 
And that was the source of the conflict. In other words, God isn't discriminating against people because of that. You understand what I mean? You get where I'm coming from? And the reason I'm trying to tell you this is because you can see the grace of God right here. (laughs) How's that? That King David... Listen, don't miss this. I know it's time. Steelers lost yesterday. You got time. King David and the Messiah descended from Ruth, who was a Moabite. Any of us, whether we're Jew or Gentile, we can become children of God, the people of God through Galatians 3. You can read about it. You see the grace of God. One final thing I know. You're ready. Why was he preoccupied? Here comes the punchline. Why was he preoccupied with the times of the day? Times of the day. Why? I mean, he's preoccupied. Here comes Christmas, folks. You always turn. You want us to talk about this chapter. You can head over if you want, or you can just listen. Isaiah chapter 9. You always want to talk about it during Christmas. Here you are in the dark of night. It's night. It's night. It's night. And when the rescue comes, the Bible tells us that the sun popped up over the horizon. Now read this. The Christmas chapter. Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless... The gloom or the darkness will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed. The land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the, the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Watch the people who walked in darkness hmm. have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death. Sodom and Gomorrah. Upon them a light has shined. You've multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest, as when men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you've broken the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the days of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle, garments rolled. Here it comes, for unto us a child is born. We live in darkness. And this little baby came and he grows up and he dies and he rises again. And he says he's the firstborn in quality. And in order to be saved, you see, through the darkness that we live in, it's as if the Lord comes and grabs your hand and walks you out into the light. It's incredible. The Lord uses that. He was preoccupied with the times of the day because he knows that in us dwells no good thing and that men enjoy the darkness more than the light. That's what the book of John says. But he makes the way. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for this day and uh, thank you for this incredible word. 
Genesis chapter 19. We pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you in a real and saving way, they would today. If there's anyone here who has failed and they've tried to come back based on their own merits or our own merits, we pray. We pray together, don't we? That each one of us would fall on the grace and mercy of Jesus. And thank him again and again. In Jesus' name, amen.